You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Hello and welcome to the Transformative Podcast with me, Yanis Panayotidis, the Scientific Director of RITSET, the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. In today's episode, I'm very happy to welcome Ivan Kalmar, who's a professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto. Hi, Ivan. Uh, hello, Yanis. Thanks for inviting me. Very happy to have you here. You've published a very interesting book just this year with Bristol University Press titled White But Not Quite, Central Europe's Illiberal Revolt. And in this episode, I would like to discuss some of the key concepts and issues of this book with you related to a topic that is also very close to my own research interests. So it's a particular privilege to be discussing this with you today. My first question relates to the core phenomenon that you study in your book. You discuss a phenomenon that you call Eastern Europeanism. Please explain for our listeners, what is this and how does it relate to this very evocative title of your book, White But Not Quite? To put it quite simply, Eastern Europeanism is prejudice against Eastern Europeans, and I call it racism. It is a racism against people who are considered white, but who are not considered quite white enough in terms of white privilege. And the discourse, the talk that justifies not granting them full white privilege, I call Eastern Europeanism. And why is it that they aren't granted white privilege when they are, on the face of it, quite literally white? In my book, I explain this in terms of what we call racial capitalism. And that's not a kind of capitalism, but it's an aspect of capitalism that it's racial. Structurally, capitalism privileges the accumulation of capital by a restricted group. Now, if we look at how it's functioned in the colonial context, then we see that capitalism has privileged white groups, but as opposed to people of color who were restricted in the colonies to labor to produce the wealth that was accumulated in the white-dominated colonizing countries and after the 18th century, especially of Northwestern Europe. Racial capitalism doesn't encourage accumulation of wealth by all white people, but also makes discriminations among groups that are considered white. Always this distinction between the accumulating group and the laboring group is justified by racist language. And so we know very well the racist language, the racist discourses against people of color, but Uh, the discrimination against people from Eastern Europe who also are excluded from the full accumulation of capital also has its own racial language, and that is what Eastern Europeanism is. 
Right. So it is an explanation that relates very much to economic structures, one could say, and economic processes of accumulation and exploitation, which I guess is quite different from other approaches we've had to this phenomenon of othering Eastern Europe. I noticed when reading your book that you're, for instance, not very fond, let's say, of Larry Wolf's seminal book, Inventing Eastern Europe, which, you know, at first glance came as a surprise to me since both he and you talk about the othering of Eastern Europe through a Western gaze. There's there seem to be quite fundamental theoretical or methodological differences there at play. Maybe you can elaborate a bit how your approach differs from his. There is a difference in the way that I approach it. And I attribute current Eastern Europeanism to the economic situation after 1989, whereas Larry Wolf attributes prejudice against Eastern Europeans to cultural factors, probably, and sees it as a more historically embedded situation. I think that he's making a mistake there because his method is what Umberto Eco called a grasshopper method. You go from one place to another, you hop to a few places and you find examples. You don't look for counterexamples and you generalize to an area. So he has many examples of how Eastern Europe seemed alien to Western Europeans already in the Enlightenment in the 19th century. I think those examples are not necessarily that great on my reading. Let me give you an example. Wolf quotes a letter by Mozart to his friend in Vienna as Mozart has traveled to Prague and is writing to his friend in Vienna the following. Now, farewell, dearest friend, dearest Hickety Horky. That is your name, so you will know it. We have all of us on our trip invented names. They follow here. I am Punkitititi. My wife is Shabla Pumfa. Gopher is Roska Pumpa. Stadler is Nochibikichibi. Josef, my servant, is Sagadarata. Gukel, my dog, is Shomansky. Madame Qualenberg is Runzi Funzi, Ramlo is Shuri Muri, Freud Tetler is Guli Mauli. Have the kindness to communicate to the last mentioned his name. And Wolf comments on this by saying that this is because Mozart was making fun of Czech. He didn't understand Czech. Here he sees the opportunity to create imaginary pseudo-Slavic, as Wolf puts it, and pseudo-Oriental names for his companions. But you know what? I don't hear anything Slavic in most of those names. And the idea that when Mozart entered Bohemia, which Wolf says that he felt like he was entering a different world, as Wolf says we would feel now, it doesn't make much sense because Southern Bohemia was like mainly German-speaking. And I don't see how Mozart would have found it so strange. It doesn't make any sense. It's very ahistorical. He talks about the travels of Casanova. And when Casanova experiences something in St. Petersburg, he generalizes it to what he calls Eastern Europe. I see it as part of an effort to establish that Eastern Europe is eternally different, contrary to the hopes of Eastern and Western Europeans. It's an early example 
of the disappointment that many people have felt that Eastern Europe hasn't become like Western Europe, and an attempt to explain that, not in economic terms, but in cultural terms. It's always been considered as different. I don't know of any evidence for that. I think in German, the term Osteuropa only appeared in the late 19th century. And in English, Eastern Europe with capital E's as a separate part of the world only began to be used after World War II. I'm not saying that it's illegitimate to speak about prejudices about Eastern Europe, but I think it sort of suggests some caution, the fact that this area was actually not named as a separate part of the world during the Enlightenment or the period that Larry Wolf thinks that it was imagined as different. Other than that, it's a wonderful book. I still enjoy reading it. And there's a lot of really useful insights there. So I'm not sure it's totally true that I don't like it, but I advise caution about its central thesis. Right. So you basically criticize this idea of a very deep genealogy of West-Eastern construction of difference in Europe. At the same time, you do discuss history in your book. I mean, your book doesn't start in 1989, but you talk a lot about the construction of Eastern Europe, the construction about Central Europe, and how the one shifts into the other. You also mention the particular German history of anti-Slavism. So maybe you can give us a sense of how history does relate to your post-1989 story. Yes. So as we can see, for example, with anti-Semitism, hate, racism, prejudice draws on language that existed in earlier periods. Language against Eastern Europeans, racism against Eastern Europeans is rooted in earlier language and relates to it. It's certainly related to anti-Slavism. We have to recognize that Hungarians and Romanians are not Slavs. And anti-Slavism did not address them the same way as Slavs. For example, the German attitude to Hungarians was quite different from the German attitude to Poles or Czechs. In fact, Poles and Czechs also was not the same attitude by Germans. In my book, I mentioned that anti-Slavism is indeed a very important source for Eastern Europeanism. And I suggest that When we think about it, we have kind of written out of history the German factor in East Central Europe. Because anti-Slavism, on my reading in East Central Europe, was about a struggle between German speakers and Slavic speakers for privileges and secondarily for territory. It's important to remember that there were German speakers all over East Central Europe. So anti-Slavism was a little bit of a local conflict also, not just Germany on one side and the Slavic-speaking countries on the other. That separation was actually the result of the tensions that once existed. But the language of anti-Slavism has many features that are also in Eastern Europeanism and targets now also, of course, Hungarians, Romanians, all the peoples that used to live under communism. Let's move to this other part of your book title, the illiberal revolt that you mentioned. How does Eastern Europeanism, as you call it, or anti-East European racism relate to this illiberal revolt, which comprises what we've called the authoritarian backlash or the democratic backsliding that has been taking place 
in Central and Eastern Europe, and in particular the Visegrad Four countries that you're focusing on. So how do these two relate? I think you were correct to suggest that, in my view, the economic background is fundamental to the rise of illiberalism. But the way that illiberalism finds a language has to do with Eastern Europeanism in the following way, that Eastern Europeanism insults Eastern Europeans and others them as not fully white or fully European. The illiberal language, it doesn't logically need to be so, but historically is expressed as a kind of backlash against it by stressing that Central Europeans are indeed very white and very European, and in fact more so than Western Europeans, because Western Europe is in decline due to various factors, including the migration of people of color and the softness of its elites and manipulation by people like George Soros, <laughs> etc. Uh, so the West has become not true to its Christian European essence, but the Central Europe is more true to it. So it's kind of actually whiter than white, as opposed to not quite white, is the language that racism in East Central Europe tries to assert. Kind of an overcompensation, if you will, as in not only aren't we less white, actually we are more white, we are better than you in a sense, and we prove this by rejecting those whom we consider to be very different, like Muslims, like queers, etc. Because you discuss Islamophobia and homophobia as well, right? It's exactly the way you put it, Yanis, but I would say it's not laying this charge at the feet of all people in the West. So it's not really anti-Western, ultimately. It's against the liberal West. They see themselves as white and therefore also as Western, but the West is declining because of the liberal element. Central Europe is reminding the West of its true heritage. And in this... Illiberal people in Western Europe totally agree. They lionize people like Viktor Orban, perhaps a little more before the war in Ukraine, also Putin, as people who are preserving the values that they in the West also believe. When reading your book and reading about the constellations you described there, I got a sense that you interpret this illiberal turn in Central Europe and the racism by Central Europeans that comes with it as a kind of misguided response to actual grievances caused by neoliberalism or by racial capitalism, which I guess one could interpret as a classic false consciousness argument. Do people who subscribe to these illiberal views, do they diagnose the right problem but find the wrong answers? I totally agree. It's false consciousness. And in Marxist terms, false consciousness arises when the working class has an analysis of their oppression that actually favors some elements of capital. I'm not totally a Marxist, I should point out, but I find that Marxism is very good on analyzing capitalism. I like the term of false consciousness applying here because I feel that there's an alliance of not all but certain parts of the working and lower middle class with what I call national capital. 
And so illiberalism ultimately really serves the national capitalists who are competing with transnational capital. The national capitalists, locally connected business, does compete with transnational capital and needs an ally and finds an ally in some of the laboring classes who, like the national capitalists, ask the state to protect them against foreign competition. So yes, it's a false consciousness. I have one final question that has become very relevant. Of course, you address at the end of your book, which was published just this year and coincided with the Russian attack on Ukraine. And in your conclusion, you surmise that Ukraine was not admitted to NATO in the past because it is not sufficiently white. You wonder if NATO would extend full solidarity to its Central European members in case of attack. Now, nine months into the war, has your assessment of the situation changed at all? To be fair, not totally, but I mean, it is true that solidarity with Ukraine is strong in the West. And for now, it's submerged the Eastern Europeanism against Ukrainians. But we know that French President Macron said not long ago that it will be a very long time before Ukraine is admitted into the EU. He hasn't been saying it in the last few months, but it's only a few months ago, really, that he last said it. Poland is now a great leader in supporting Ukraine, and they do support Ukraine very strongly. But we have statistics that hundreds of hate crimes against Ukrainians had been reported in Poland before the war. So there's a very strong element of Eastern Europeanism transferred onto Ukrainians. I'm not very confident that when the war is over, things have changed enough for Ukraine to be admitted to NATO. In fact, I wonder if the deal isn't going to be in the end that the West will agree that Ukraine will not be admitted to NATO. I think that Ukraine might be admitted to the EU, but at the same time, Western European countries will organize to have what we now call already a two-speed Europe and encourage alternative ways for Western European cooperation that will exclude Ukraine, because I don't think that Western Europeans are truly looking for another, as they might see it, Poland or Hungary, to be admitted into the EU. And Ukraine's a huge country, so it would have quite a bit of influence. Hopefully things have changed a little bit, but I'd like to be more optimistic than truly I'm able to be. Ivan Kalmar, thank you very much for this fascinating discussion of your wonderful book. It's goodbye from me, Yanis Panayotidis, from Vienna. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by RedZet in Vienna. Let's go.